You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going through a a, a series that we've called uh, The Great Divide and basically have been looking at um, some of the theological differences as we make our way through the book of Ephesians. This is a fascinating book, and um, my heart is and my prayer is that you have, have, will fall in love with it even as we make our way through it. We are in Ephesians chapter 2. Last week we looked at what a, the subject, what a dead man can do, and I'm going to continue on that subject again today, kind of part 2, what a dead man can do. Uh, last week we saw where Paul describes us in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, and that's where we're going to pick up today. So if you got your Bibles, just take them and turn there. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning at verse 1, Paul said this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, now Paul's including himself here. Paul is kind of wrapping his arms around these believers there at Ephesus and he's saying all of us. Paul's not, Paul's not simply saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were under the leadership of Satan. But Paul said all of us. And so he says here in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, watch this, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And so we saw last week where Paul is talking about believers. Now, a while back, when I, when I started this series, I built this small corral, this enclosure, and uh, you can tell it's kind of moving a little bit. It looks a little shaky. I'm a little worried about it. But in some ways, that's a picture of the church because the church gets knocked around quite a bit. But this enclosure is a picture of what Paul was trying to tell us when we are in Christ. This is the reason Jesus would often use a sheep pen and he would talk about him being the door. And so we see this enclosure here in our sanctuary and we see Christ there in the doorway and he's the one that we must go through in order to enter and to be in Christ. And he uses there the word predestined or prarizo, which means that God has marked out the boundaries and established this plan before we were ever created. And so when you and I come to Christ and we encounter Christ, we by faith experience grace, then we are inside of Christ. We are in Christ. We're sealed, Paul said, and and we're secure. Now what Paul wants us to understand, because the only way you and I can really appreciate Jesus and appreciate grace is to understand our condition when we're outside that enclosure, when we're outside Christ. Now, what Paul is saying to you and I, he's kind of referring back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 23, and he's talking about there in Ephesians chapter 1 that Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected. And now he's alluding to that same power because, see, when you and I are in Christ, in essence, spiritually, we're dead... Physically we're dying, spiritually we're dead, but then through the power of God's Holy Spirit, we are resurrected. We're spiritually made alive. And so Paul wants us to understand that. Now, outside of Christ, Paul says this, you and I are physically dying and we're spiritually dead. And last week we talked about the subject of what a dead man can do. There's some people that would say, there's some theological persuasions that would say, well, if you're spiritually dead, then there's absolutely nothing you can do unless God does it. It can't be done. And so thereby God does it in some men, doesn't do it in other men, and some are saved and some are not. But we talked last week about what a dead man can do. And we saw this, that even going all the way back to the beginning, when you look at, well, first of all, Ephesians 1.13... If you look at that, Paul said, and you also were included when you heard a kuo, when you heard and believed. 
And we looked at this, that a dead man can hear, a spiritually dead man can hear God. Because we went back last week, we looked at Adam. You remember? God told Adam, Adam, don't take of this tree. The day you eat of this tree, you'll die, die. He says it in the Hebrew twice, saying you'll not only physically die, Adam, you'll spiritually be dead. Adam partook of the tree. Immediately, he begins physically to die. Spiritually, he's dead, separated from God. He's now hiding in his fig leaf costume. God comes into the garden and begins to cry out, Adam, where are you? Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. God calls out, this is God setting a plan, a purpose, a process. This is a picture of the church. God calls out a spiritual dead man, cries out and says, God, here I am. So a spiritual dead man, a dead man, hears the call of God. Adam heard God's call. Number two, a spiritually dead man can recognize his condition. How do we know that? Because Adam is hiding from God. Adam knows that he's a sinner. He knows he's separated from God. Number three, he responds to the call of God. When God calls, Adam answers. That's the picture of the church. Ecclesia, ek, out of, kaleo, to call, to call out of. So here we see God, we see Adam responding to the call of God. Number four, a dead man can repent. And this is important for you and I to remember because in Luke 15, verse 17, the Bible says, Jesus said of the prodigal son, that he was spiritually dead. The father said, my son was lost, now he's found. He was, he was dead, now he's alive. A dead man was able to repent. So here we have a spiritual dead man who's able to hear the call of God. He's able to recognize his condition. He's able to respond to the call of God. And number four, he's able to repent. So yes, a dead man, a spiritual dead man, can do some things. And we see it in Scripture. I think some of those of the theological persuasion or position who basically say that man is dead and can't do anything, are speaking of physical death. And I think that's a, a, a poor comparison with what the Bible means as far as spiritual death. Repentance is a cognitive act of the will by a spiritual dead man, but in his physical existence. Now, now Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 begins to talk about our condition outside of Christ. What do we look like when we're not a Christian, when we're outside that enclosure? If you look at what Paul was saying in verse 2, look at verse 2 and 3 again. He said, in which you... Now he's saying, in a moment he'll say you and I both. He said, in which we used to live when we followed what? The ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. First of all, Paul said this. He said, when you and I are in our lost state, when we are outside of Christ, we are going to be driven by desire. Now stay with me here. We are driven by desire. In other words, Paul said, when you and I are outside of Christ, our appetite, what brings us pleasure is the driving force of our life. We make decisions based on this. Does it make me happy? Does it bring me pleasure? We don't think about consequences. We're not worried about consequences. We live in a nation today, a government today, that in many ways is coddling people's promiscuity, immorality, and poor health choices. Nowadays, we make poor decisions, and once we begin to see the consequences, we look to the government to fix it. And my friend, that is a mistake. It will always be a mistake, because until man sows, he reaps what he sows, he'll never fix the reaping, or then he'll never fix the sowing process. But man, outside of Christ, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you may say, you know, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to quit doing this. I'm going to start doing this. But my friend, it is a losing battle because you'll be driven by desire. This is what Paul was saying. In fact, if you want to see this, in Luke chapter 4, verse 4, turn over there for a moment. In Luke chapter 4, verse 4, Luke chapter 4, 
we have the temptation of Jesus by Satan. And you remember, God, uh, you know, Satan leads Jesus. Jesus is, goes into the wilderness. And there the Bible said he went without eating for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says that Satan appeared to him. And Satan said this. He said, Jesus... He said, why don't you take these stones? And I'm sure those stones in that, in that area literally look like a loaf of bread. And so the enemy, Satan, says this, Diabolos. Satan says to Jesus, he says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Now Jesus says these words, man shall not what? Man shall not live by, by, by bread alone, but by what? By every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, some of us might think, well, that, you know, that's pretty simple. I've heard that many times. You know what Jesus was saying to the enemy? The enemy was saying, hey, listen, why don't you allow yourself to be ruled by your appetite? Jesus was saying, filled with the Spirit, that you and I are not ruled by our appetite. It's not what brings us pleasure. It is not what brings us contentment because the world's contentment is always short-lived. In fact, I wrote this down. Pleasure outside of God's perimeters becomes perversion. Did you hear that? Pleasure outside of God's perimeters, outside of God's law, will always lead to perversion. For instance, sex. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, all of these deviants outside of the, of, the, of the boundaries that God has established for sexuality will always eventually lead to some form of perversion. Charles Stanley said this, and I thought it was good. Charles Stanley said this. He said, even in the life of a believer... Even in the life of a believer, and this was eye-opening for me, it is not about your desire, it's not about my desire, it's about discipline. You see, it's not like even though outside of Christ, you and I are going to be tossed, we're driven by our desires, what makes us happy, what brings us contentment. We have no power of the Holy Spirit to give us any victory in those areas. Let me say this, when I was nine years old, I was baptized. In my second church, I was still not having victory in some areas of the flesh. There were two people talking about what it meant to be Christians. They were talking about victory in their life, and it so convicted me that when they left, I got down on my knees in my office, and I said, God, something, listen to this, because some of you need to hear this. Something is tragically wrong because I am driven by my flesh. Something is wrong in me, God. I am not having victory in these areas. And broken as a man of God, I put my face down in that chair. I cried out for God to come into my heart to forgive me of my sin and give me victory. When I stood up, I felt like a new man. I stood before that congregation that Sunday and said, I am saved, and I know it. And since then, there's been victory in my life. I am no longer driven by desire. I am driven, controlled, and guided by the Holy Spirit. Does the enemy have victory sometimes in my life? Yes, he does. But for some in this room, you are controlled, manipulated by the flesh, by the devil, by desire, because the Holy Spirit is not there. Paul says this. He says we are dead in our transgressions, in our sins. He uses interesting words there, sin, uh, amartia, the idea of messing the mark. It's a man who's trying to live a good life. Some of you in this room, you're trying to be holy. You're trying to be good. You're, you're trying, some of you are trying to be perfect. And the idea there is, harmatia, that you keep falling short of what you want. Paul said it, Romans 3.10, he said, there's none righteous, no, not one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
heard a story one time of a man who visited an old western town. He walked around and he'd see a post and, and, and on that post would be a, a drawing of a bullseye and right in the middle, that, right in the bullseye would be a bullet where somebody had shot it. He'd go over and see a tree off to the side and he'd see a, he'd see a target and then the bullseye would be a, a, a bullet hole and he, he noticed them just all over the town. He finally walked into the saloon and he said, my goodness, he said, you must have a, a real marksman here. And the, saloon, the guy who kept the saloon there kind of looked at him a minute and he laughed and said, no, not really. He said, in fact, he's a town idiot. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, what he does, he shoots and then he goes and puts a bullseye. You see, sometimes that's you and I. Uh, we, we, we set our own standard. We, we, we put it up there and... and, 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 and and, you know, but Paul is saying here, he, he's using the idea there that God has put a bullseye, that God has put a target up there. God has a bullseye, and the bullseye is sinless, holy, perfect. Because of sin, I keep falling short of that and feel helpless and hopeless. He uses the word trespasses there, paraptoma. The idea here of stumbling and falling and straying from the path and and uh, this is what he's saying here. Eve trespassed. God told Eve, said, Eve, don't go here. God, God told Eve, Eve, this is, this, this is, this is trespassing here. Don't, don't come here. Don't go here. And Eve, went, Eve was trespassing. She was in territory she had no business being in. I was a very good at trespassing. Growing up, uh, you know, living up in the hills out of Yazoo City, we used to fish and swim in a lot of places where it had signs that said no trespassing. And me and friends of mine, we would get our inner tube and we'd get on our bicycles and we had our tackle and our fishing gear and we would, we would watch these homes sometimes when they weren't looking. We'd make sure that nobody was outside and then we'd pedal down through those fields. Sometimes we'd get down, crouching down when that cotton began to get high, and we would make our way getting, tried to get to a field, I mean, get to a lake or a stream or a pond or, or someplace because we wanted to fish. We wanted to swim. We were very good at trespassing. I think sometimes in our life, what Paul was saying here is that you and I can be very good at it. Paul said we're dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sin. I love Jerry Clower. He tells a story of coon hunting. Had a man took a city guy and they went coon hunting and they were let the dog, I don't know any of you have been coon hunting, but it's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable hunt. If you ever have an opportunity to do it, do it. But they let the coon dogs out and the, and the dogs took off and you hear them just whoa, whoa, just belling, you know, just making those sounds as they're moving around through the woods and all of a sudden you could tell when those dogs get on the trail of a coon because they'll begin to get... You know, that, that, that sound and that well, that howl will begin to be different. And so that city guy was sitting there looking at this old country, country guy, and he, he said, well, what, what, what's going on? He said, well, they're, they're, on, they've, they've, they're on the trail of a coon. They're, they're, they're on the trail now. And, and all of a sudden, the dogs got quiet. And uh, the city man, this old city guy looked over at the country guy and said, they got quiet, what's going on? He said, well, they're going across posted land. <laughs> Some of you take a minute. But you see, what Paul's saying is that you and I outside of Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and our sin. We're driven by desire. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, we're directed by the devil. You see, once Eve in the garden said no to God, said no to the counsel of God, once Eve was now driven by her own pleasure, what was good and pleasant to her eyes, what she thought was best for, then immediately now she's trespassing in a sacred territory. She's driven by desire, and now she's directed by the devil. The devil says, hey, come over here. I don't care what God told you, there's something better. God, God, God's trying to keep something from you. You see, that's the enemy. In fact, Paul uses here the word that we are under, outside of Christ, we're under the power of the air. And one writer said this denotes the sum total of evil powers over which Satan has a rule. 
If you're still at Luke 4, I want you to see this. In fact, I say this. If you don't see anything else today, I want you to see this one. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5, beginning at verse 5. Luke chapter 4, I want you to see this. Okay, now in verse 4, it said, Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil as to the stone turning to bread, he said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, now this is the devil talking to Jesus. I will give you all the authority and splendor. Now I want you to look at this. Underline it. Highlight it. For it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, worship, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, that's what the devil does. And what Paul is saying, when you and I are outside of Christ, Paul said we will be driven by desire because we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have no control. People look at me all the time and say, I can't help myself. In some ways, what they're saying is right. We're driven by desire. We're directed by the devil. We have a commander-in-chief. It's no longer the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not master of my life. Listen, outside of Christ, the devil is my master. He's my Lord. He's the one that I'm, I'm obeying. And so this is what Paul was trying to make uh, clear. And then in verse 3, Paul says, all of us. Paul said, listen, I'm not any different I was driven by desire. I was directed by the devil. Every area, Paul says in verse 3, our conversation, our conduct, is everything about us. Listen to lost people. Get around them. It's GD this, blank this. Man, they're, they're just foul mouth. They're just talking. Paul said in, in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. We had a man in our Sunday school a little while ago that was talking about uh, a, a person that, he's, that he was talking to this week and, and uh, said the man just kept using profanity and finally he said, hey man, you need to watch your mouth. And he told him that about two or three times. The guy just kept on using profanity. And finally this man, who's a member of this church, looked at this guy and said, hey, why don't you come and go to church with me this Sunday? The guy laughed and said, man, I'm a member of so-and-so church over here. And you know what this man in our church said? Well, it sounds like he's not doing you any good. You see, when Jesus Christ is the Lord, when he's the master, when you and I are filled and under the control of the Holy Spirit, he determines how we talk, he'll determine what we look at, he'll determine what we listen, he'll determine what we put in our mouth. Listen, he determines what goes in our mouth and what comes out. Paul said here, he says, but outside of Christ... We're driven by desire, directed by the devil. Our conversation, our conduct, everything about us, Paul said, makes us children of wrath. Do you understand that? In Christ, I'm an object of grace. Outside of Christ, I'm an object of God's wrath. Let me, let me explain it this way. You remember in the Old Testament, the, the Passover, that last plague when the, when the Egyptians would finally let the Hebrew people go. You remember what Moses told them. He said, Moses said, now God told me to tell you this. He said, for you to go out into your flock, pick the best lamb, the lamb without blemish, take that, cut that lamb's, cut that lamb's neck, spill that blood over into that basin, take that hyssop, Take that hyssop, dip it in that basin of blood and go around the door frame, the door post, around, that, around, that front, around the door of that home. He said, then once you've done that and if you're poor and you can't afford a lamb, then you team up with another family and you go into that, you go into that enclosure, you go into that home. Listen, here's security. I'm sealed. I'm safe. I'm an object right now of God's grace. Now listen, out here, I'm an object of God's wrath. In here, I'm an object of God's grace. These Hebrew people were worshiping. They were celebrating. They were singing because God was delivering them by the blood of the Lamb. 
Out in here was grace. Outside here was the Egyptians under the full wrath of God. You see, you and I have to understand this, and I, I, I can say this again. Only you know whether you are in Christ or outside of Christ. Same is true of the ark, Noah's ark. Noah was in the ark. His family was in the ark. Inside was grace. Outside was God's wrath. One writer made this statement. He said what Paul was saying was contrary to Jewish thought of that day. Jews regarded themselves as God's children, the objects of his love. Gentiles they regarded as outside the scope of God's love. Paul's words were revolutionary. Outside of God's grace in Christ, both Jew and Gentile abided under his judgment and were in a state of living death. So Paul's making clear that our condition outside of Christ is we're in sin, we're in our trespasses, we're hopelessly, we're helplessly lost. Now what is he going to say about the comfort that comes in Christ? Because see, there's, he talks about our condition outside of Christ, but then he talks about our comfort in Christ. Look at verse 4, what he goes on to say. Like the rest of us, verse 3, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Boy, and all God's people said... Amen. You see, that enclosure there that is built in our sanctuary to give us a picture here of what it means to be in Christ was established before time ever began. In eternity past, in the mind of God, Prarizzo marked out boundaries. God had a plan of redemption. And I want you to know something. Hear me. It was sufficient for every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever lived on this earth. Now Paul makes it clear. But because of his great love for us. Now watch this. God who is rich in what? In mercy. I love that. You see, because what we love, we tend to show mercy to. Let me explain it this way. I love my grandkids. Grandparents are no good at parenting grandkids for the most part. And you know it. Ledge, Ledge will say, Ethan, come here. Come here, Ethan. Come here. Now he's getting ready to discipline Ethan, but I'm the mediator. Oh, son, he's tired. He's had a big day, the little guy. Oh, son, don't spank him. Don't get on to him. He needs a nap. You see, I, I, I'm trying to go in and, 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 and get in between the voice of authority and the responsibility of his son. You see, but, but in some ways, I'm, 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 I just love him and I'm showing mercy, I'm showing benevolence, forgiveness because I love him. You see, what Paul is saying here is that God shows mercy because he loves us. He loves the world. In fact, the scripture says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He uses the Greek word there, pas, which is the same word Paul uses when he says all scripture is God-breathed. God is rich. In the, in the, in the Greek here, it's, it's uh, pousios. It's, it's the picture of richness, of abounding in resources. God is abounding in mercy and benevolence, in forgiveness, in kindness, in compassion. He uses the, the Greek word elios for mercy. He said God is rich in his mercy. Paul wants us to see the character of God. He wants us to understand that when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to mercy, that God is extravagant. In Deuteronomy 4.31 it says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. Some would say that that mercy is limited. There are some of a theological persuasion that would say that mercy is limited. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying if mercy is limited, then it's not extravagant. 
He says God is extravagant in his mercy. God shows mercy far more than we would ever understand, far more than I would show. It would take a lot for me to spank or discipline Ethan. I'm benevolent. I'm forgiving. A, grand, a grandchild can hardly do anything wrong. No matter what they do, the grandparent just excuses it, makes allowances, just keeps on. In some ways, there's the picture here of God. He's just rich in his mercy because he loves us. He's benevolent. He's forgiving. Some would say God shows mercy to some while passing over others. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying that his forgiveness, his mercy, his compassion, Elias, he's saying is extravagant. My sister, years ago, their church moved in a theological position more that of a Calvinistic position. There came a point, dynamic church. My sister challenged the pastor and the leadership. Now this church was probably running 1,000 on Sunday morning or 1,200 on Sunday morning. She challenged the leadership. She had served in various committees. She had been involved in, in, in every aspect, every part of that church. But as they moved in this theological position of Calvinism, she, she began to, to, to speak against it. And finally, publicly in a service, she spoke out very strongly against it. And the outcome of that was that she was disciplined by that church. And eventually she was removed from the membership of that church. I would say outside of my grandmother, she's one of the most godly people I know on the earth. In the midst of all of that theological confusion, there were a group of elders, four elders, that brought my sister before them to, 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 to speak to what was happening and for her to defend herself. And so she came in and she had her Bible and these men sat behind this, this table and they began to drill her on her theological position, which was more that of what I would say was a traditional Southern Baptist. At a certain point, they made this statement. They looked at her and they said, we don't know why God shows mercy on some and while passing, while they use this terminology, while passing over others. And my sister sat up and she thought for a minute and she said... Uh, she said, that's strange. They said, what do you mean? She said, that's strange. You are accusing God in Luke 10, 25 through 37, this parable, the story of the Good Samaritan. She said, it sounds to me as if you're accusing God of having the same heart as that of the priest and the Levite. Do you remember? Do you remember when the, when, when the, when the rich ruler came to Jesus and he said, Lord, you know... What must I do to be saved? Jesus said, listen, you go, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and love thy neighbor as, my, as yourself. And, and the man said, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of the good Samaritan. He said there was, a Samar there was a man, he was going down the road on Jericho. And he got caught up in a group of thieves, and they, they robbed him, and they beat him up, and they left him for dead. They threw him over in the ditch. The Bible said a priest came by, and the priest looked and saw this man beaten, bruised, laying in the ditch. And the Bible said that he passed by. In fact, the Bible said he went to the other side of the road and went around him. Next there came a Levite. He looked. He looked at this man. He was broken, bruised, beaten, laying there in the ditch. And, and the Levite stopped and looked at him for a moment, analyzed his condition, and then he too went and passed by. But then Jesus said the good Samaritan said he saw this man. He came down. He began to lift him up into his arms and begin to doctor him, washing his wounds, cleaning him up and placing him. My sister said, that's strange that you would accuse God of being like the priest and the Levite and passing by man in the ditch of sin in his greatest need. At that point, they dismissed the meeting. A few weeks later, when I was there in Niceville, Florida, in Destin, I was actually in Destin, my sister and I were in a restaurant along with a few other family, uh, a, a deacon from that church came over and before long was in my face and told me that he didn't appreciate what my sister had said in that meeting and took great, uh, uh, was very upset, became so defiant, so rebellious that it literally became a confrontation in the restaurant. And I looked at him and I'll never forget it. I have a lot more education than he has. 
I said, sir, I want you to know something. I'm proud of my sister. I think she represented well the character of God. You see, what Paul wants you and I to understand is that God is rich. He's rich in what? He's rich in mercy. And Paul said this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Look at that, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. If you read on, verse 5, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you and I have been saved. What he was saying was, he was alluding all the way back to, to Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, where he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter is a bodily resurrection. Listen, not only of the body of Christ, but the ecclesia, the body of his church. I was dead in Adam. Paul says that. The moment Adam said to Eve, give me a bite of that, he took a bite of it, and instantly, physically, he's dying, spiritually he's dead. I'm in the loins of Adam, and I'm a dead man. But my friend, go all the way fast forward to Calvary. Go all the way fast forward to that death on that cross as Jesus said, it is finished, and he he gave up, the Bible said he gave up his spirit, which means nobody could take it. He had to give it, and he died. And they buried him in that borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and they tucked his body away. They, set a, they say they rolled a stone over. They put a Roman soldier there to guard it. And the Bible says that all of a sudden, instantaneously, on that Easter Sunday morning, the power of God's Shekinah glory, the power of his Holy Spirit ignited that body, stood up and came back to life. All of hell at that point was in alarm. I want you to know something. I was dead in Adam and I was alive in Christ. And this is what Paul's saying. Listen to Jesus. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whosoever, pos in the Greek, that means all, whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Paul said, outside of Christ, we're driven by desire. We're directed by the devil. Our condition is sinful. We're in sin and our trespasses. But Paul said, there's comfort in Christ because we're loved and God shows us mercy. And we're resurrected. Outside of Christ, I'm dead. Inside of Christ, I'm alive. I don't have time to do it, but Paul deals with this in Romans 6. Well, I do have time. You don't, you're not here but one time a week. Romans 6, look at it. Romans 6, verse 5. Romans 6, verse 5. Paul says it here. In, in Romans 6, verse 5, Paul says it here. He said, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self, look at this, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be, look at this, slaves to sin. We're not driven by desire. We're not directed by the devil. Our Lord, our Savior, our Master is Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit is what gives me victory over what I could not have victory before. Now watch what he goes on to say. Might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed for sin from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once and for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith and my faith is futile. He said it's foolish. You are still and I am still in sin. Verse 19, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy. Elias. He uses there the word palus, abounding, great mercy he's given us, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My friend, Easter Sunday, I'm not just celebrating his resurrection, I'm celebrating mine. 
Good Friday, I'm not celebrating the death of Jesus. I'm celebrating the death of Jesus, of Jeff. Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, I'm celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of Jeff because I am in Christ. And Paul says all of this in verse 5 was initiated because of grace. God's unmerited, undeserved love. In verse 6 he goes on to say this, look at it. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with Him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us who are in Christ. Do you see it? And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ, with Him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. I think the greatest danger today in some of the theological stuff that I'm hearing today that is even hip is that sometimes it is more, listen to this, it is more God-centered than Christ-centered. I listen to a mega-pastor. He's a very, uh, very prominent mega-pastor. And, and, and I've never heard him before, never heard him before, so I thought, I'm going to listen to this guy. I got on the treadmill, and I began to go back through his sermon archives, and I just clicked on a sermon. And he began to, he began, first of all, he started off by talking about a suicide that had taken place among the staff. And then afterwards, he began to preach. And, and uh, it, he was over 20 minutes before he ever introduced or said a word about the Scripture. Then after I listened for a little while longer, he quoted more the Westminster Confession of Faith than he did the Scripture. Then when he wanted to add authority, he quoted John, Jonathan Edwards in this order. Jonathan Edwards, Augustine, Paul, and Jesus. Because he was saying, I'm in good company. I sat there and listened to that, and one thing I didn't hear much of, I seldom ever heard the name of Jesus even mentioned. It was a God-centered theology and not Christ-centered. God doesn't even like that because I can tell you what. What Paul was saying, it's all about Jesus. And you say, let me end with this. A dead man can receive a gift. Paul says in verse 8, he goes on to say, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. Grace is a gift. His Son... Jesus told Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The idea of giving is a gift. Jesus is a gift. He's a gift to all men. Freely offered to every single one of us. Nothing in us. There's nothing good in us. Paul said, not of yourselves. It's not because you and I deserve it. It's not because we've earned it. It's a free gift. And that's the only hope that we have. You see, out here... The only hope that I have is to be in there. Now the world, I'll try a lot of things out here, but hear me, it'll never bring contentment, it'll never bring peace, it'll never bring any victory over the flesh. But I want to say this, it's a free gift. And I want you to hear me, number one, to receive a free gift. A gift merits no work on my part. Do you hear that? To receive a gift merits no work on my part. It's not anything that I've done. I simply accept what someone else has done. If I invited you forward and said, I have a gift to give you, and you came up and received the gift and then went back to your seat saying that you'd work for it, then it's not a gift. You see, John 1.12, he says to, he, he, Jesus said this, He's, he's given us the ability, the, the power to become the sons of God. How? By receiving the gift. And he's offered the free gift of salvation, but it must be accepted. And it's free to every single person. It's available to every single one. That's why Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave this gift. Number two, to receive a gift merits no goodness on my part. It's not because of my goodness. It's not because I'm good, but it's rather because he's good. It's the gift of grace, and it's free to all. Why? Because God is rich in His mercy. Elias, He makes that gift available to all of us, and it's free to receive. Let me ask you something. I'll close in a moment, but if I thought the gift was available to me and not to others, don't you think that I'd have a tendency to be very proudful? 
Wasn't that the problem with the Pharisees? Didn't they see their covenant position? Didn't they see that position as a position in which they could take pride? If I thought the gift was for me and not for others, then wouldn't my tendency be to think that I'm special or of some elite group? Couldn't it possibly lead to an arrogant spirit that would be void of the very grace that I've received? You see, God didn't single me out. God singled out the whole world. He said, I love the world, and I'm rich in my mercy and my love for, my, for this world, and I, I love it so much that I'll give my son to die for it. Maybe we would be better to put over that corral there free gift inside. If I had to program you to accept a gift, then I've made a statement about the gift itself. Did you hear me on the website? If I have to program you to receive a gift, then I've made a statement about the gift itself. There was an estate auction. An old man had died, a very wealthy man. People, neighbors, friends, everybody gathered at this estate because they were going to read the will. Man was worth a great sum of money. But before they would have the reading of the wheel, they had all the incidentals, all the stuff that was going to be auctioned off. And so the auctioneer got everyone's attention and the place was packed and the family and distant kin were there because they were all waiting for the reading of the wheel. And so the auctioneer came and he had a painting. It was an old painting. It was dust and, and dirt and grime. There were a lot of, it was an old painting. It had been around a long time and and the auctioneer set that painting up front, in front of the podium. And he said, first of all, he said, what, are my, what is my bid for this painting? Some of the family began to, begin to shout and say, just, just move on. Just somebody quickly buy it, do something, get it out of the way, and let's get on to the reading of the will. Finally, there was a little crippled-looking woman at the back who for years had worked for the old man. She came forward and said, uh, sir, she said, I... I would like to have the painting. I don't have much money. This is all that I have, but I'll give it. I'd like to have that painting. She had tears streaming down her face. And he said, ma'am, that's, that's fine. He handed her the portrait. She took the portrait and put it to her chest and just clung to it for a moment, began to make her way back to the seat. The auctioneer said, the, the, the estate sale is over. Everything's over. The family began to file forward for the reading of the will. He said, you don't understand. He said, it's over. He said, all the riches, everything that he has is given to the woman who fell in love with that picture. You see, that's the picture of his son. He died years ago. And the man said this. He said, whoever loves my son gets everything that I have. Young teenage girl in Evan Roberts' youth group stood up one day, knees shaking, and she said, all I can say is, I love Jesus with all my heart. And she was crying. It began the Welsh revival, one of the greatest documented revivals in the history of the church. God loves you. He's rich in his mercy. He's done everything that you can do. He's done everything that he can do. I'll tell you this much. I love my kids. I can't imagine giving them up. He gave his son for you. I'm going to ask you to stand with heads bowed and with eyes closed. Nobody looking around. Maybe God is speaking to you right now with heads bowed and with eyes closed. Some of you here today have never fallen in love with Jesus. Some of, you, some of you here today are driven by desire. You can't control yourself. You're driven by alcohol and drugs, sex, pornography. You're driven by, you're driven by everything but the power of God's Holy Spirit. 
You're under control of a lot of things, but it isn't Jesus. Your mouth is what it is because it's under the control of, your, of the one who controls all of your life. That's the devil. You see, Jesus said, out of the mouth, out of the heart, and what proceeds out of the mouth is where the evil comes from. It comes from the evil that is in the heart. Why? Because Christ, His Holy Spirit, is not there. I want to, I want to invite you today to be set free. Some of you are eaten up with anxiety and worry. Some of you are here today and you're afraid to die because you don't know where you'd go. I want to invite you to settle that. I want to invite you today to fall in love with the one who's already in love with you. Can I say that again? I want to invite you to fall in love with the one who's already in love with you. He's in love with you. He's rich in his mercy. He's rich in his love. He loves you today. And he's waiting right now. And his Holy Spirit is wooing your heart right now. He's speaking to you. You can hear him. You can feel him. You know he's there. I want to invite you to give your life to Christ today with heads bowed and with eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, Brother Jeff, I don't know whether I'm a Christian. I don't know where I'd go if I died. But I want to settle that today. Would you fall in love with Jesus? Would you invite him? into your heart right now? Would you just simply say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Lord, take control of my life. Lord, live in me. Live in me, Lord. I'm tired of fighting this battle. I'm tired of losing the war. Come into my heart. Forgive me. Take control.